Hi, everybody. Good to be with you. Before we get into the Bible today, I wanted to uh, talk a little about the church plants and the group of churches that we've been connecting together with um, over recent years. Dating back about 10 years, we've started a wave of new church plants into different cities. And uh, that's certainly been slowed down or made difficult by COVID. We've not been able to travel, for example. So we've had to do our communication through technology. And uh, that's, that's, that's certainly limited us a bit, but it's also, it's also proved an opportunity for us to keep connecting and often with more people than usual. And with that in mind, I wanted to mention to you uh, a gathering we have this very week. Uh, you may know that we have our regular big Wednesdays here as a church where we gather together to pray on a Wednesday evening as a whole church. And we have one of those coming up this very week on Wednesday evening. It, it won't be in person. It will be one of those that we'll be doing online on this occasion. So we're not, uh, we're not asking you to attend any particular location. But we are asking you to join us online because we are going to be gathering online with all of the different people from the different churches that we have planted or are connecting with. And that will be people from Krakow uh, in Poland, Berlin, Amsterdam, uh, here in Brighton, uh, up in Greenwich, uh, Brixton, Bath, Belfast and Ottawa. And uh, so this is a fantastic opportunity. It's a new thing for us to try and gather with as many as possible. Hopefully the technology will work and we will all stay together on the same call and, uh, and get to pray together for the Church of Jesus Christ to continue to flourish in these key cities, reaching people, these many millions of people that leave, live in these cities with the good news of Jesus and helping to shape their lives and subsequently families and culture and society in these absolutely key cities that uh, have so much influence on society in our age. We are responding to a very simple and clear call that we feel God gave us as a church to keep planting into these key cities. He's helped us to do it. It has been inspiring. Even this last uh, weekend, we had the joy of seeing our first baptisms in the Belfast church plant. Uh, two churches that were planted even during the lockdown, one in Bath, one in Belfast, and some of our own went over, flew over, now that we're able to start travelling again to be involved in that service. In fact, Annie Waller, who's here at the New England site, uh, was in the baptism pool baptising uh, on that very day. It was a fantastic, fresh new occasion for us of real breakthrough into a new city. Uh, we also have good news to share from other places. Berlin, the church have moved into a new location. I've only seen photographic evidence so far, but it looks inspiring. It looks big. It looks spacious. And I was so excited by what I saw, not just the, the space, but the crowds that are already gathering on Sundays at that new location. Amsterdam, they're already back to good numbers uh, despite the lockdowns. Uh, there in the fantastic Liberty Church that Matt and Joe Simmons have planted. And Janusz and Camilla over in Krakow, earlier stage for them, but uh, they are genuinely reaching out to new people all of the time and gathering people. There's so much to be encouraged about in these different situations. Uh, I myself, along with Kate, my wife, will be going over to Canada uh, this very week. We're just going to spend a few days with Rich and Natalia Crosby. Many of you remember them. Uh, we are looking forward so much to our first trip 
since the lockdowns began. And I'm so glad to be this time taking Kate with me for the first time. Uh, I hope that we'll really be able to serve those guys. And it will mean that I will join you for the prayer gathering, but I'll be joining you online from Canada. So I'm so looking forward to this occasion, this Wednesday evening. Uh, we are longing to see Jesus glorified in these cities, but that won't happen automatically. It won't happen just because we wish it would. Our praying plays a key part. And I want to urge you to take that seriously. Let us pray together. I urge you, I summon you, I call you to pray. Let's, let's press on asking our Heavenly Father for progress for the good news of Jesus Christ so that many lives will be changed in these many cities that we're serving. Bless you guys. Look forward to being with you on that. We're going to spend some time in the Bible now. So uh, carrying on with our series, Your People, where we're looking at our key relationships during this term. And today, the scripture reading is from the end of Ephesians chapter 5. But first, we're going to see some people on the street answering questions on the theme we're looking at today, which is marriage. And uh, I hope that many of us will be helped by the scripture that comes up immediately afterwards. She's incredible. <laughs> Yeah, very, very and lucky. what makes that relationship a good relationship, in your she, opinion? She does. Yeah, she's my rock. In fact, you take it, that's her there. <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't really beat it, to be honest. I'm very lucky. Um, we met when she was very young, and I was young, and been through it all. You know, like I said, you know, in a way, we're sort of reliving our first, um, the way that we created this young family. We were the only ones doing it at the time. And then to do it all again, there's a whole series of a whole generation of new parents out there and we, we feel like we're the older ones now. If there's something bothering you, talk about it because it's only going to be a bigger problem later. Uh, trust as well, just like, and like being a team, like if there's a problem, work together, you know. Exactly. I feel like we're a good team, but yes, our communication is getting better every day. I feel like we've never actually had a proper argument yet. Yeah. Good job, guys. Good. Thank you. Yeah. Well done. Yes. And if you, has COVID affected your relationship with your wife at all? Yeah, it kind of has because we've had we've come we've, we've become closer, if I'm honest. Yeah. So I, I see it going the other way for a lot of people. Okay. You know, and I've heard of fortunate stories of it just being you know being boxed up. Mm. But I guess also I'm pretty fortunate because I get to work. I worked all the way through, so yeah. I, I was I was occupied. I think that that was a big thing for us. But yeah, now now I can. Safety say I got through it and survived it. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, this is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord of your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another and out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, and he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, 
so that he might present the church himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourish and cherish it, just as the Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. One of the things that COVID has done is it has brought us back to our primary relationships. Uh, that's why we've done this series called Your People. Um, it's very easy to slip into the, the, the mistaken idea that the command that the Bible gives for us to love one another is really obeyed out in some far-off distant post where we, 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 you know, perhaps one day we get to be involved in, in church planting in another city, as, as I was mentioning before the reading. We get to go and love people who are far away. Uh, or maybe we, we obey the love command by, by reaching out to certain disadvantaged, needy individuals who are uh, requiring of our charity. And if, if, if we're followers of Jesus, then, of course, we will, we will love people who are, who are out there somewhere. And we fail to realize that, in reality, the, the, the call to love and usually the most challenging, challenging place where we have to obey the call to love is in our more ordinary, everyday, regular relationships uh, that COVID certainly has drawn us back to over the last couple of years uh, with those people that we do life with normally and especially family and in, in fact especially husband or wife which is the theme of the reading that we've just had. You see we, we, can, we can start to think that the, the call to do good to other people is yeah primarily uh, targeted at distant people. But these can be abstract things. These can be faceless things. Frankly, it's quite easy to love people that we've never met. It's, it's pretty easy to show kindness and charity to people that we don't have to do any relating to. We don't have to go through the, the, the challenges and the, the spikiness of relationship. And yet, if there is an emphasis in the Bible towards whom we should love and how we should show our love, it is to those people who are most commonly and immediately in front of us. The call to love your neighbour, when Jesus spoke about it in that parable in Luke's Gospel, the Good Samaritan, the point he was making is the person you love is the person directly before you, whoever they are. And for most of us, the person directly before us for a lot of our lives will be in our family. And for many of us, it will be our husband or wife. And so it's interesting to me that Paul, in, in the letter to the Galatians, he, he seems to suggest a certain kind of focus of our love. He, he does say uh, in chapter 6, uh, verse 10, do good to all people, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. So there's a kind of gradation 
seemingly suggested there by the Bible. Certainly do good to all people, indiscriminately love all people. We are called to love everybody, but especially, Paul says, to those who you're closest to. And then in, in, in 1 Timothy, Paul, speaking to his protege, he, he, he talks about how people within the church should look out for one another. And he says, if anybody uh, it, it doesn't look after the interests of his household, his own household, especially those who are his own family, he's denied the faith. He's, he's worse than an unbeliever, which is a stern warning. It's a strong line that Paul is drawing. Surely it's, it's one of the most... Uh, bold lines in the in the New Testament. Worse than another. Deny the faith. Can't be a Christian if you're not loving, looking out for, serving the interests of the people that you are you're responsible for in your own household. And then coming even further in, so we've talked about those who are of the household of faith, the church, particularly love them, and then even more particularly, you're called to love those who are in your own household. And then you get Paul here in this, this, this very uh, passage we've read from in Ephesians chapter 5. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Jesus, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. So the closer I get in these intimate relationships, the more, not the less. It's not like, well, of course, yeah, we don't have to love your wife or your husband. You don't have to love your kids or you don't have to love the people in your small group or you're in your low. Of course, we take that as expected. You know? No, really, what love means is going out to a foreign country and loving people or dealing with a, a distant issue or a social justice issue. That's what loving people means dealing with things out there, man. It's, it's loving the, that's out there that they need love. No, 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 no. The Bible's accent rather seems to be on loving the nearest to us, who should be the dearest to us. But those relationships will go under strain and testing and difficulty. And so the calling comes all the more clearly in the Bible. No, right there, where it's difficult to love, that's where you must make it your resolve. That's where you must stand firm in the command of Jesus. You love one another. You will, Jesus says. I command it. So I'm kind of pinned to the wall by these kinds of passages because I, I would far rather and far easier drift away with my life and just love people whom I'm gradually distracted by or charmed by, who I take a liking to. That's how my heart works. That's how my emotions work. I'm flattered and excited and, you know, beguiled by certain people and interests and in discussions even and hobbies and oh I love this I love that but the Bible not despising any of those things enjoying and receiving them as gifts from God still drives us back to the central love command that's the 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 central part of life to love those that we're sharing life with to love your people who are your people and how are you loving them and right now, we want to look specifically at the issue of marriage. And when we talk about the marriage relationship, I think we, as 21st century people coming to the Bible, need to expect a couple of 
readjustments, realignments that can be difficult, uncomfortable, a little bit kind of jarring to our sensibilities. Because what, what the, the, the natural tendency for us in our 21st century way of thinking about these things is to, to be underprepared for the battle. We underprepare for the very real battle that we face in ordinary marriage relationships, to be sure. And we also, I would say, we underimagine the story. We underprepare for the battle and we underimagine the story. What do I mean by that? When I say battle, I don't mean the battle against your spouse. That may, that may seem uh, a feature of your marriage relationship, but that's not my point. I'm talking more about what Paul has to say here, here in chapter 5 as it began that, that reading. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. There's a strictness, there's a sharpness, there's a sobriety to the way that Paul is talking. It's, it's rather like a commanding officer calling troops to attention. Step up, attention, get ready. This is, the days, he says, are evil. We tend to underestimate the nature of the warfare, especially in the context of marriage. Marriage is under terrible threat all the time. And I, I guess during COVID, there have been particular kinds of challenges. Certainly as a pastor, I'm aware that marriages have been strained in fresh and difficult ways over the last couple of years. Marriage is under attack, I would say, in our culture anyway. It has been for a couple of generations at least. And marriage has been under attack from the beginning. Marriage is a delight, is a joy. Marriage is a gift. Marriage is a, is a garden. And yet at the same time, it's a, context for, it's a context for a militant attitude. We have to fight for it. No one has ever drifted into a healthy marriage. I want you to hear that. You can write it down, underline it, tweet it, whatever, remember it. No one has ever and will ever drift into a healthy marriage. Which is why Paul, when he talks, he's about to talk about these family relationships, husbands, wives, children, parents. And it's in this context that he calls us to a militancy. Don't walk as unwise. The days are evil, he's saying. And it has been an evil day from one of the earliest pages of the Bible, from the very beginning when we as humanity declared our conflict, our war with God, and brought into the world all the sinister, uh, the sinister kind of powers of evil, the, the evil presence of sin, sickness, Satan, the accuser, the, the genuine spiritual forces of evil, we invited into our world, into our very lives, into our homes effectively, a forceful personality who wants to harm our marriages, wants to harm yours if you are married. He, he, he wants to bring it under and destroy it. He wants to. And it's only foolish naivety 
that fails to see that reality. And Paul draws us, calls us out of our naivety, wants us to wake up to the, to the risk, to the danger. He wants us to see life is not as it should be. We enjoy, it's, it's, we perhaps live in a difficult tension because we can enjoy the, the delights and the, the romance and the, the, the genuine uh, pleasures of marital life. And, and be so kind of transfixed, maybe for seasons especially, where, where we, we're so, we're almost, <laughs> I was going to say drugged, but, but deceived into thinking that it doesn't need to be fought for or protected because it's all so happy and delightful and easy. But no, those things that are so beautiful need strong walls around them, need protection. And, and so we need to be real. We need to be, it's, it's a bit like, in some films you may have seen or stories where uh, a character, maybe in a, com a comic kind of situation, is brought into a war without realising and kind of carries on in the story. Like there was a 1980s uh, movie with like Steve Martin called The Three Amigos where there's these kind of, kind of uh, third-rate film stars of like, uh, I don't know which era, uh, and they get a call down to, to Mexico to to uh, help defend this village against some bandits. I guess it's like in the 1920s or something. And, uh, and so they go down there as film stars thinking that it's, they've been called up to, to play in a movie. And they go down to, to fight these, you know, with, with guns, with, with, with blank bullets. They kind of, they're just expecting uh, it to be a show. And that's all they are, they're film stars, they're not warriors. And within you know, the first few minutes of their time in Mexico, they begin to realize, oh, one of them gets <laughs> shot. And it's kind of like, was that real blood? And it's this moment, you know, it's just, I mean, it's one example. There's many stories in films that give the same idea of like, someone having to wake up, this is real. I want you to understand, this is real. If you're married, if you want to be married, if you're looking forward to marriage, if you are inspired to, and I hope you are, if you desire marriage, you desire a great calling, a noble thing. But it's a battle. It's something to fight for. I was only just this week talking with a, a new friend whose story is one of pain, or at least part of his story is pain. As, he, as a young man saw his parents go through the implications of his father's adultery and the, the pain that brought upon him and his household. And the guy that would have said, oh, that would never happen to my parents. That would never happen to my parents. And unfortunately, it did. And presumably part of the reason was because his parents thought the same. That would never happen to us. <laughs> We're safe. But you're not safe if you're, if you're assuming it. You're drifting. If you're not watchful, if you're not understanding, the days are evil. And there's worth, it's worth... Uh, protecting uh, the integrity of your marriage forcefully and doing, as Paul says here, walking carefully, being wise because of the evil day. But I, I only mentioned there the first of the, the ways the Bible kind of realigns us. It, it, it calls us to, to come out of our foolishness because we, we, we tend, as I said, as, as a first point, we tend to underestimate the battle. But we also, secondly, as I said, we, we underimagine the story. We underimagine the story. And uh, in different ways we do this. We reduce marriage 
reduce our, our concept, our story of marriage. What, what is the story that marriage tells? What is the story my marriage tells? What is the story I'm living in? We're exposed to a lot of stories from childhood, from the fairy tales that we're given to the, the romantic comedies that we, we watch, the, maybe the, the, the sitcoms, the soap operas, maybe even the reality television. We see different versions of the story and we, without realising it, perhaps can absorb a version of marriage which is way short of the story the Bible presents to us, the guiding ideal story, the, the, the story that, that reveals the purpose of marriage. What is it about? Where is it going? Why was it even invented? Why do we get married in the first place? And if, if I ask that question to us, I wonder what our answer would be. What would your answer be? Why do we get married in the first place? Increasingly, 21st century people would, would respond with ideas like you know, self-fulfillment. Get married because I, I want to be completed. I, you know, the Jerry Maguire language, you, know, you, you complete me. Maybe you remember that 90s movie. You complete me. I, I get married because I, I, I am reaching out to be completed by somebody. And when I get that completion, I will be fulfilled. And, and so I need marriage to, to fulfill my gap, to meet my need. And, and it hopefully will gratify that, that longing that I have. And, and the Bible wouldn't necessarily put all that aside. There's meant to be satisfaction and delight. There's plenty that celebrates that in this book. But the story that we see as Paul describes marriage here in Ephesians chapter 5 is so much greater. And when we, when we settle at the story of self-fulfillment, what we'll find is the balloon deflates even further and further and further because such a vision is never big enough. It's not expansive enough. It will shrink to our tiniest imaginations the point where these days self-fulfillment is such an idol that it's a reason for us to abandon any sense of responsibility in marriage. Even just this last couple of weeks, I've come across stuff in the media, a, a, a piece in the New York Times by a lady called Lara Razelon under the title, Divorce Can Be an Act of radical self-love. Divorce can be an act of radical self-love. The encouragement presented in the New York Times, in one of the most you know, globally most recognized media outlets, presenting divorce as an option, which isn't just you know, for those of us who can't reach the ideal, but no, no, a radical act of self-love. Something to even lift up and admire. Even... In Vogue magazine, which you may be surprised to have me quote, uh, I, I get it monthly, as you might imagine. I think it's monthly. I, I have no idea, really. I don't have a clue. But I came across this being quoted through another source. But this, this, is, this is Adele speaking. And, uh, I mean, phenomenally successful and famous uh, singer with an extraordinary voice and talent. This is her story recently of... I'll, let me read to you word for word what she said in an interview that she did for Vogue. I was just going through the motions, speaking about her marriage, and I wasn't happy, she says. Neither of us did anything wrong. Mark that. Notice that. Neither of us hurt each other. So this isn't a story of abuse or harm or anything like that. It was just, I want my son to see me really love and be loved. It's really important to me. 
She says she and her partner were broken up for some time before they told people. I've never been on my journey to find my true happiness. Sorry, I've been on my journey to find my true happiness ever since. Some of the most difficult moments involved her son. On the whole, Adele says, the divorce has gone as smoothly as a divorce can. My partner lives across the street in a house I bought for him, and they share custody and do regular family movie nights. Even during the turbulent moments, though, Adele had faith that she was doing the right thing. If I can reach the reason why I left, which was the pursuit of my own happiness, even though it made Angelo, her son, really unhappy, if I can find that happiness, and, and he sees me in that happiness, then maybe I'll be able to forgive myself for it. He has so many simple questions for me that I can't answer because I don't know the answer. Like, why can't we still live together? That's just not what people do when they get divorced. But why not? I'm like, I don't effing know. That's not what society does. And why don't you love my dad anymore? And I'd be like, I do love your dad. I'm just not in love. I can't make that make sense to a nine-year-old. I don't tell you those stories from the New York Times and from Adele to get you snarling with contempt against individuals. This is not, let's, let's, all, uh, let's all kind of gnash our teeth at a famous singer-songwriter. That is not the point. Adele is just speaking for a culture. She's saying, frankly, what I kind of half expected a 21st century person to say now, because we have made such an idol of our individual self-fulfillment that we will come out with phrases like that. We've been saying things like, what well, Adele, she just happens to be the spokesperson for a generation. And so I am in no way trying to castigate her as an individual. I'm trying to point out the canary in the coal mine. I'm trying to say, look, this, this is, is the danger that we're in as a society where we, we so easily have drifted to that kind of a small story of what marriage is about. And friends, when we do that, we, we, we fail to see the big, glorious story that, that we haven't even time to unpack, nowhere near time to unpack in this great passage. But let me just draw out some, some simple themes that are so uh, staggering to us. Paul wants us to understand that, that marriage is, is actually far from being simply about an individual's self-fulfillment. It's actually an expression of something glorious and eternally planned in God's mind. The bringing together of himself and his people. His son, Jesus, the son of God, brought into union with his church. The church that he loved and died for, that he gave himself for, as Paul describes here in this passage. That's the story. This is a story of a glorious cosmic romance that God's been weaving through history and it will bring to fulfillment when the church and Jesus are united forever in eternity. This is the purpose of history. And marriage, our individual marriages get to be signs. Each particular is a sign of the universal. So when we are saying I do, when we are being drawn into that covenant, that relationship, that bond with another person, it does speak of something glorious that's happening within us. The promises that we're making, the connection 
we're making is, is, is glorious, but it's glorious because ultimately it points to something yet more glorious. It's, it's a reference to something even greater, and it gives a sacredness and a soberness to what it is we're entering. This is no small thing. Our self-fulfillment, that's, that's the nice thing. It's, a, it's good. It's fair enough. Let us be fulfilled in our marriages. I hope and pray that you all will be who are married. But understand, friends, that that's still secondary. It still isn't, it isn't enough to constitute the real substance of marriage. It's still not a great enough purpose. You're called to, to demonstrate. You're called to be a, a showing of, a showcase of, a display of God's glorious saving love through his son Jesus who gave himself upon the cross for his bride to bring her into fellowship with himself. This, this, this story is the one that we need. It's the story that lifts our aspirations, motivates and inspires us to build well with our marriages, to explore well, to be humble, to be prepared, to look carefully. Words like submit and respect and, and love and lay your life down for one another. These are strong words. These are huge, challenging, and on first glance for many of us, off-putting. I understand that. Culturally, these, these words, they'll trigger some of us. And perhaps we need that. We need to understand how far as a culture we've drifted away from the ideal. What is the point of marriage? Why did God constitute it? When we see something beautiful and serious in, in, in his plan, we start to think, what does that actually look like? Uh, time doesn't allow for us today to, to go into the detail of how that works out. We, we'll do other things. We'll find ways to talk about it. Sure, things like live lunch and stuff we can maybe use to, to answer some of the questions of what Paul is getting at here. And there's all kinds of great things that we can recommend to help you even read about this and study this, which you need to do if you're pursuing marriage. You need to be trained in what the Bible teaches about this great subject and given a better, greater story than the one that we're so easily fed, which reduces things to self-fulfillment, reduces things to transaction, where, where we tend to imagine, you know, the way that I will be gratified in my marriage and, and happy is if, if my spouse does her bit or his bit, if, I, if, if, they're, if they're doing what this book says, then it will work for me. And uh, quite often in, in marriage, a, a husband or a wife, out of just frustration and dissatisfaction, will, will make that complaint. You're not doing the part you're supposed to do. You, know, do. you see what it says here? You're supposed to love me and lay your life down for me. You're supposed to respect me. You're supposed to submit to me. And the people get into all kinds of horrendous situations because they, they, they treat it as a transaction, treat it as something that you kind of do as though it's by cold commercial exchange. But the covenant that is being displayed through your marriage, what, what is meant to be represented is the covenant of grace that God began not when we deserved it, not, not when we'd earned it, he, he, he didn't ever start it that way. This is a, a, this is a marriage of grace into which we've been called. 
He loved and chose us when we did nothing for him. In our blood, as the Bible says. In our shame, in our squalor, at our worst, in our sin. God saw us. He sees you. At your, your, your most shameful, the things that we're most embarrassed of, the things that we feel most guilt over. And perhaps if we stop and consider further, we, we find the guilt almost suffocating. If we allow it to form in our imagination, we say, oh, God, the, the real things I've done, the real things I've said, the real things that I haven't done, I haven't said, are, are things that I've thought, things that have gone on in my mind. I, I know at my worst, I'm a horror to God, at my worst. If you are able to understand that, and actually, it's a good sign. If you're able to see your need for forgiveness, if you're able to see that you don't deserve the love of God, but then able to see that at your worst, as the Bible says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Very rarely will somebody die for a, for a righteous person. No, for a, a good person. Someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated, demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At our worst, he came. In your worst, he loved you and gave himself for you, to, to wash you, to cleanse you, to prepare you, to make you spotless and pure, to give you a hope and a future. And this, this, this is what Paul means when he talks about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. When he talks about reverence for Christ, he means a sense of awe, a sense of fear, a sense of wonder at the... the the scale and the beauty of his love for you. To be deeply aware, I don't deserve this. And yet knowing I've been so loved, it, it will change the way you relate. It will do it. It might do it slowly, but it will do it. And you should let it take its time. You should let it work itself out in the way that you love one another, in the way that you forgive one another, in the way that you put one another first, in the way that you decide in your heart I will choose to love you, uh, to respect you, at times when I don't think you deserve it particularly. I'll choose in my heart. I'll make that my, my, my resolve. And I believe that as we start to do it that way round, as we involve our will in the love that we're called to do, we'll find, yeah, that's what it means to, to obey the love command. Because we find, yeah, I'm loving my neighbour. I'm loving my enemy. <laughs> Sometimes it can feel like that in a close relationship. Man, I didn't think I'd have to love my enemies that often. But sometimes conflict can arise. Struggles can come in and we begin to feel the taste of, no, I'm going to choose to love. I'm going to choose to forgive. I'm going to choose to give myself to this person as Christ has given himself to me. And I believe that as we do that increasingly, wisely, with the help of the Holy Spirit, who empowers us, as Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. The outcome is a more loving, genuinely loving marriage, family, wider community, church, even city, as we reach out in real relationships of love. Let's pray together.
God, thank you for this privilege that we have in the husband-wife relationship to which you've called many of us. I want to pray, even perhaps most of us, some who aren't yet married but are called to it, that you would help us to have the, the militant attitude that Paul calls us to, to fight for it and to have the big imagination that Paul gives us here to see the the opportunity to glorify and display you in our relationships. Help us to do this with the help of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.